When we promise to present fascinating people and their extraordinary stories, this episode truly is an example of this in spades. Jim Gagan, one of R.D. Hubbard's most treasured friends and business associates, was always going to be episode number two, but we had a difficult time getting together, mainly because Jim did not particularly want to do it. First, because he didn't understand what the podcast was, and second, Jim's schedule was very unpredictable. But with help from Hugh Greenway and some threats from Mr. Hubbard, Jim agreed, and his edition is informative in many ways, unbelievable, and always entertaining. But it certainly showed the close relationship between these two giants. From November 2019, the original, unedited, Bighorn Podcast, brought to you by Leeds and & Son and AT&T. We will miss Jim, but he's with his good friend, R.D. Hubbard, telling stories right now. Welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. This episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers. I'm Marty Lockman, and our guest is James Gagan, a member of the Bighorn community since 1992 and an original investor in Bighorn. Jim has been an integral part of the Bighorn family, but his story as a successful entrepreneur and the founder of United Consumers Club is just part of his story. Welcome, Jim. As I have asked all of our guests, please take us back to the beginning and share with us the life experiences that have shaped your personal and business success. The beginning, my dad met my mother. <laughs> That's too early. All right, uh, let's see. There was no really beginning to the club. Uh, it wasn't a club. I had a, I have a checkered background. I have never graduated high school. I didn't go to high school, but I did graduate eighth grade. And uh, eighth grade was difficult. But aside from that, I uh, had to do something to get employment. My family separated, and I lived on Chicago streets for about a year, and then I got old enough to join the Army. And uh, I was tired of being hungry and cold, so I did join the Army, the American Army. And I, they took me in, and fed me and clothed me and, and trained me. I don't know for what, oh, for to kill people, but that really wasn't a profitable situation. And so I listened to them and I stayed and it, they had a program that you had to go to school if you under Truman, it was a brand new army. And I went to school, so they trusted me and would you know what? I was perfectly qualified to do anything in a medical field. And I had not done an operation or anything. Uh, I didn't even use band-aids, I used to bleed out. But in the meantime, I went through school and they taught me how to speak, and I don't remember that, but I did follow the, their direction. And I'm trying to remember all of it, but that's, it would be so boring to tell you what happened. Uh, 
I went AWOL. I was I went back myself. They had trained me to do the medical field, but they were putting me in the infantry. And they gave me two weeks training when they called me back in. I was recalled after having served two years. And I went back uh, at that time and argued I shouldn't go in. They were doing panty raids uh, in all the colleges and I was going for a second term. And worse than that, I was going in the infantry and I didn't mind shooting them, but they were shooting back. And I said, that's enough, I, I'm not interested. And so I went AWOL. Well, I stayed AWOL for about a month and a half. And it dawned on me that I might be shot as a deserter. <laughs> so I decided to go back voluntarily. And I did that by hitchhiking across the country. And uh, I didn't have a plane at the time. And so I went back, but I didn't go back to uh, California, where I was supposed to go. I was in New Jersey. Yeah, that was one that was, no, New Jersey was sending them to Korea. I went to California, they were sending them to Europe. So I decided Europe was the better of the choice. And uh, I went to Europe. I turned myself in and they were nice to me. And long story short, and this is a long story, but I did go back in the service. And somehow from an infantryman, I ran a motion picture theater in Paris. Now that's a long story, but uh, I was highly trained. Uh, so <laughs> I went in special services when I went back in the service. And uh, they couldn't find a place for me with my MOS number. That's military occupation specialty. Mine was in uh, physical reconditioning. And it was obvious from my frame that I was very dedicated. So they said, did you ever have special service training? I said, I did in school, yeah. And they said, oh, you're in special service. I was in Paris at the time. And uh, I said, that's fine. Uh, what do I do? <laughs> they said, well, we'll just send you to a, a, a base. And they did, they sent me to Toul Rosier. It was an air base. And I was attached and I became the uh, special service officer. Now my rank was private, Private Gagan. I never rose in the service. I uh, had several opportunities, but apparently I didn't qualify. But here I was a special service office for France, for the Yukon uh, Motion Picture Services. And in France, they had no theaters and we couldn't get one for our base. What happened is I found a Frenchman that owned one and it was closed and we negotiated and I talked to headquarters and they negotiated a lease and we had a theater, but we didn't have any films. It was a theater that had the old uh, celluloid reels and if you, it was a hot arc lamp and if it, you didn't do it properly, it exploded. I didn't like that idea. So I found a Frenchman that could operate the cameras and we got the theater. We got the, and then it went to Yukon Motion Picture Services. And they uh, signed a lease with us and 
they provided the films at no cost to us. There was a cir circuit that had films. It went around Paris and all the little places and some of the places in Germany. And that, that film circulated. They were the first released new films from America. And they were good films. So we showed them in the theater. I f operated theater for uh, a year, almost, yeah. And then I realized I was already due for discharge. I didn't want to go home at the time. <laughs> I was uh, enjoying Paris and, and the nightlife and the rest of it, but uh, I had to go home. So they knocked on my door at about six in the morning with two MPs and said, you're going, Gagan, now. And I went. I was put in the back of a three-quarter ton truck. It was February. France is cold in February. We got one village away when I started screaming, help to all the people, because I had two big burly uh, MPs in the front with a heater, and I didn't have one. I was dying. I, they then told me to be quiet or they'd come back and put me down. I told them they better hurry, because every time we go through a village or anything else where there's people, I'm going to scream rape and we'll get some attention. They, they took me out, they stopped the truck, took me out the back, put me between the two burly MPs in front, and they would periodically during the ride to uh, Bremerhaven, they would, they used to use their elbows and they'd say, how's it feeling now? I said, I'm more, I'm warm, okay. But it didn't stop them. And I finally got, got to a troop ship and anyway, I went back to America. We had a scheduled 10 day, 10 day trip across the Atlantic. It was February. There are, there are many, many storms. We started out and we arrived 15 days later. We were five days late, but we spent that going up and down. And when I got there, I was discharged in one day. And they charged me for my AWOL time. They did. So now I, I'm back in the States and I got to get a job and do something. I didn't have a particular specialty. So I became a truck driver and uh, let's see what else. A variety of different little jobs, none of which had any preeminence or any specialty. And then I got in the oil business. I got a plane, an airplane, <laughs> and uh, it was a single engine Cessna. And uh, I was flying it and the field operator said, you know, I've got a guy here that'd like to fly and he, would you take him for a ride? I said, I'm, I'm practicing takeoff and landings, I'll take him. He got in my plane and he was, he had a, a oil company shirt. Maybe you people remember Sinclair was one of them, and they had a Sinclair sticker on the on the over their uh, shirt in the corner. And I thought he was running a gas station. I didn't know, and so I flew with him, and uh, he was a nice enough man. 
and he was about oh, five, ten years older than me. And at that time, I was working in a finance company. I had gotten a job with Household Finance, which was big at the time. I was then running an office. I didn't bother to tell him I hadn't gone to school, but it worked out good. And so now I was doing that when I got a call a couple of months after that ride with that gentleman. And uh, he called me and said, could I take him down to Alleyne, Illinois? And I said, why would I do that? I, I'm not a commercial flyer. And he said, well, I want to check on my wells. I said, wells? What kind of wells? Oil wells. He wasn't a gas station attendant. He was a developer in oil. And to make a long story short again, we became partners at that point, and uh, I was learning the oil business. The oil business is no different than any other business. They make it sound exotic, and they've got all sorts of things, but they're as blind as you are. So I, w I became an oil man at that point. I started my own oil company, United Pen Oil and Gas. And it was incorporated and had a lease hound and a drill crew and all of that took time and I'm not gonna bore you with them, but we got it done. Lou and I, my partner became Lou and we, we drilled uh, 24 wells in uh, West Virginia, primarily. And uh, let's see, we drilled in Pennsylvania, uh, Trying to remember, oh, okay, uh, Ohio and Illinois, only Illinois. So we drilled shallow wells, wells that were uh, 1,000 to 2,000 feet. At that time, a deep well was 5,000 feet. Today, they do 25,000 feet and never look back. But we didn't have the tools to do that. So I became a, a developer. I got out, got some leases, and uh, talked the farmers into uh, signing and used their land to drill. We drilled 24 wells, I think, in different places, but most of them were good wells. They all produced oil and some gas. Some produced gas and some oil. To be honest, you know, every well produces a little gas and a little oil. How little depends on your depth. Again, we got through that. And uh, a few years later, I, I merged my oil and gas company into a, a company in California. Uh, Capital Holding was the name. It was traded publicly trading at about uh, $12 a share. They gave me, what at the time, uh, which is what, 1963, it was uh, a lot of money. They gave me a couple million dollars in, in stock, but I was smart enough to take, uh, not lettered stock, but trading stock. Stock was trading about $9 a share. Well, only I could do this, and I really regret it, because I did the deal, and, and it was a traded, publicly traded company 
once I merged all my leases and my portions of wells I owned, uh, they were solid, they were in. That was on a Monday. No, yeah, a Monday. Well, by Wednesday, I had sold a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of stock, and I was planning on selling the rest. Unfortunately, the company was delisted on Wednesday. I did it on Monday. They were delisted on Wednesday, and it was it was firm. I had it tested. They said, there's nothing you can do. All your stuff belongs to them, and you got all their stock, which was delisted. And that was the way it went. So here I was again at wit's end with what to do. I looked at my extensive record, driving a truck, uh, running a finance company, operating an oil company, and I realized there's no room for me in the American dream. So I did is I had go back and think about it. In the meantime, I had an operation. You're getting this whole thing. Uh, had an operation, and I wasn't feeling too well. So I was sitting in a sitz bath. Now, you can ask your doctor what that is. <laughs> uh, anyway, I was uh, doing that. With my little son had been born. He was about four years old. And uh, he was playing in the water with his little toys, his little, little duckies, and I forget the other group that they had, but uh, he was playing with them. And I was uh, starting a new company. And I wasn't sure how to start it or how it would work, but I wanted a new company. I always had an idea that I enjoyed shopping. And so uh, I, I drew on that and I thought, what is the one thing I can offer people they can't get now? And that's if they can buy anything they want, as long as it's a manufacturer that's reputable, uh, I can get it for them at cost. The cost that they normally sell their distribution, which is their dealers, their stores. Well, they can't do that. Well, yes, you can. And how are you going to, well, I was talking to my wife at the time, and, uh, she wasn't too supportive. Uh, she was tired of my harebrained schemes, and she had been through several careers with me. So uh, anyway, I didn't listen to her. I, I, I got this idea that you could do it. Why would the manufacturer not sell me their goods at the same price they sell their stores that distribute it? Why not? It's, it was with the business they're in. I thought they would, and I was hoping they would. And then I went and found out that, you know, they didn't like it. But anyway, I did it, and I, my wife said, how are you going to do that? I said, well, I'm going to sell uh, franchises. At that time, in 19, oh, 1971, that's what it was, and uh, they said, well, in order to be a franchiser, you had to be able to spell it. And that's all you had to do. There were no laws. They had tried to promulgate laws regulating franchises and never got it off the ground. And I had operated a company that was doing debt prorating, and I still owned it. What I did was think back and thought, 
why can't I give them that stuff? How will I make a profit? Well, I won't charge a dime more than I pay for the furniture or the merchandise. And it became all kinds of merchandise. And so what I did in desperation, not inspiration, and that's another thing about entrepreneurs. You know, they always say I had this inspiration. I didn't have an inspiration. I was desperate. I was doing desperation, not perspiration, hard work, not inspiration, just desperation. And that works best when you have nowhere to fail because you'll die. I got away with it and I went to the merchandise mart in Chicago and found out it wouldn't be that easy. So what they did is uh, I went there the first day and they had a, a big convention. And I went up to the window they were registering at, and I said, I'd like my credentials. And they said, what's your name? And I said, uh, United Consumers Club. And they said, I don't have you down. I said, that's unfortunate, because now I'm not going to buy any furniture, and that's what you're in the business for, to get this furniture sold, this merchandise. And I won't buy it, because I can't get in. My manufacturers that are counting on me are going to be very upset and I'm going to tell them, you wouldn't let me in. Say, no, no, wait a second, wait a second. I'm going to look. Maybe they misspelled your name. And, of course, he came back and said, oh, they misspelled it. Here it is, your passenger here. So now I was in. And I went to the first showroom. It was soft goods. I didn't know the term, but that's what they called it. It was all sofas and settees and, uh, anyway, it was a lot of soft goods. Cultures, you know the stuff. Well, I went and I picked out what I thought I wanted to buy to put in a showroom I was going to open. And they said, uh, fine. And your company, and I told them, United Consumers Club. And they said, a club? I said, yeah. And they said, well, I said, how many members do you have? I said, it's my wife and I. We're just starting it. His son, and I looked young at the time, uh, said, you know, just come back when you get some members. And I said, all right, I figured that out. So I went home. I'd been turned down by a dozen manufacturers that day. Went home, brooding, and went to bed and woke up with the answer. I said, I'm not going to tell them how many members I had. That's my own personal business. So I went back the next day to different manufacturers. There were, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Well, I, they said the usual question, how many members you got? I said, wait a minute. While I'm giving you all this information, you give me some information. Do you and I, and it was a great deal of, of uh, Jewish manufacturers. Do you belong to Bernay Vrith or, or what, a country club, uh, uh, what, a health club? They said, well, yeah. And I said, well, how many members do they have? He says, I don't know. I said, well, they won't tell me either. So I'm not telling you. That's my personal business. I have every right to keep my members private. I don't want them pestered and bothered. So I'm not going to tell you. All right, now let's get on with the business. And we did. Then I ran, ran up to this kind of problems. Since I knew nothing of the furniture business, nothing of the merchandise business, and I had to figure it out quick. He says, well, uh, how are you going to ship this? 
I said, well, the normal way. <laughs> and he said, you want a pool car? And all, all of a sudden, in my head, I got a picture of a freight car with a pool in it. I thought, oh, yeah, why not? And he said, okay, good, then you'll pool with them. And then I figured out they're talking about if you can't take a whole car, you can pool half of it with another manufacturer and, and a purchaser. So I said, okay. Now I was in a pool car business and I was shipping furniture I didn't have, I couldn't afford. And uh, next we came to the payment. And I said, okay, what, uh, how are we going to handle this? And he said, do you uh, want to do a delayed shipment with a delayed payment? which I was looking forward to. And so I agreed to that immediately. And uh, that's what happened. I was now, now a purchaser in the merchandise mart of all the furniture and, and merchandise you can think of. As the time went on, and it did, I sold franchises. I had nothing to begin with, and I went, I took a napkin I drew a, a logo I was going to get, going to get, and uh, I talked to my first clients. You know, I went to the people that did the prorating business with me earlier, and they were all told to get out of business because the uh, lawyers, the shysters, were coming in, and they're going to do it, and they're going to close all of them up. So I took an attorney, uh, my own shyster, and I went down to uh, uh, Indianapolis, the headquarters of the state, and I said, um, you can't just put us all out of business. That, that's, you can't do that with a rubber stamp. You're not a dictator, and this is not a dictatorship. You give me a chance to, pr pr to argue it in court. Long story short, they then said, okay, uh, what we'll do is, and we argued and fought, and uh, they said, well, we can't sell another membership. And I said, why not? He says, because it's, uh, it's a, a security. You've got to get your salespeople licensed as security salesmen. I said, I don't know what you're drinking, but you're, you're, you're diluting. Let me tell you something. If you can make that stick, there won't be any more tickets for shows, because that's the service to be performed. That makes it a security. That's your theory. I'm using your theory. I said, so everything's going to come to a stop. There'll be no uh, credit cards. There'll be no theater. There'll be nothing that we can use. We're going to stop only now paying cash. Anything else is the security. I said, have you ever heard of the Green Stamp Act? So that was an act. <laughs> that a lot of people dumber than you were going to do. And, uh, and now you caught up with them because you're going to do it. No one's ever been able to do it. It exists today. You cannot do that. And, and if you think you can, you'll make history. So, and he had about four little attorneys, young ones. And I said, you better take these kids out of here and get some real attorneys because you're going to go into a fight. It's going to take your budget and everything else the state's got to turn everything upside down. A long argument we had. And he said, well, if you walk out of here and you sell another membership, I'll have you arrested. I said, really? I said, there's a men's room attendant down there, and this is back a long time. I said, I, I used a men's room when I came in. I gave him a tip, 
and uh, we were done. I said, I'm going back there, and I'm telling you right now, uh, the membership then was $400. I said, I'm going to, if he hasn't got the money, I'll lend him the money. I'll give him the money. He's going to buy a membership, and then you can arrest me. We'll make headlines. <laughs> I walked out of that thing, and my attorney says, you know, most amazing thing is, I said, what? Because I was a little agitated, and he said, the fact you got out of there without being arrested, I don't understand it, so let's get out the front door. <laughs> and that's how I came into the merchandise business. It's a very complex business. There's all sorts of things you, can, you have to work out. Uh, it, it wound up this way. My company, which I changed the name to, to uh, Direct Buy, because the internet was in by that time, and uh, I had I changed the name. I, I tried it out in uh, Houston, Texas. It was a smash hit, so then I put it in all my clubs. By that time, I had 173 United Consumers Clubs who became direct buy outlets. And uh, that's, that's a lot. We, I was in two countries, United States and Canada. I had 20-some operations in Canada. And then I was uh, licensed in England, Ireland, Australia, any place they spoke English, <laughs> because I couldn't speak anything. They all were licensed and ready to go. At that point, I became, well, along the way, I became 78 years old. You never know what to look at me, by the way, because I, I look like 110. But I was awful tired. I'd been working all my life. It was 78. I had the largest private buying club in the world. In the world, not just here, but I was in Canada and United States. I had hundreds of semis running down the road with my logos on them, direct buy. I was in how many different warehouses? I, I was going, it was, it was good business. It made more money than the majority of furniture companies. And I wasn't a furniture company. I was a, a, just a, a, a distributor. And they, I didn't want that title either. But I did what I did. And Mexico came, to, they wanted to, me to put clubs in Mexico because the people needed it. I said, you people don't pay, I'm not putting it in there. It's as simple as that. I operate on simple principles. You pay me, I deliver, and then we get a new customer. You don't pay. <laughs> and he said, well, they'll, I said, will you pay in advance? No, they couldn't do that. I said, I can't deliver you the furniture, that's it. So Mexico dropped off the, the, the scene. And I'm going in fragments, and I really shouldn't because there was a principle in his company. It exists today. Uh, it's in a variety of places, I think. I listen to some of the, the uh, religious people on TV and radio. And I want to tell you that the time my kid was playing in that sitch bath with me, I took up the Bible for the first time in my life and really read it. And when it got through, I, I had come to a conclusion. The Bible is either all correct or it's all wrong. 
It can't be part of anything. It's everything. And I believe that. And uh, I told my wife believed it. And we operated on the simple principle that if we had to lie, we wouldn't do it. That's why going back to the merchandise mart in the beginning was so important on that second day. I couldn't lie to them. I got thousands of members, no. I told them I wouldn't tell my membership to them. I didn't lie. It was important to me. We didn't lie, and we got through it. And that's the way it went forever on, on my, my company. We did uh, $108 million in profit the month I sold it. That's a lot of money. Yes, it is. When you talk about revenue, you're talking about big time. And so it, it, it worked out fine. Today, uh, that company that bought my direct buy has gone through bankruptcy twice because they wouldn't listen to the little high school dropout, Gagan. What they did was they knew better. They'd buy this money-making machine uh, doing the business the way I was doing it, and they'd improve it. The first year they owned it, they fired uh, 101 of my top producers in the office, in the front office. And that wasn't the way to do it. I left them the, the, the blueprint of how to continue. I was tired, and they just didn't follow it. They, they agreed to follow it. Then they merely threw it out and they went off on their own. Well, their own was bankrupt after a year. That's the way it goes. And Jim, now right now we're gonna take a small break for a message from Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers and then we'll be back with the rest of the Jim Gagan story. You're buying more than a diamond ring or you're buying more than a watch when you come to Leeds and Son. You're buying integrity, you're buying value, you're buying the best products in the world brought to the Coachella Valley with great care. Leeds and Son, the Coachella Valley's jewelry experts. Well, Jim, your company was the precursor to companies like Costco and Amazon that are so phenomenally successful today, but you were there long before they even had the germ of the idea. We predate Costco and Walmart. How about Walmart? 17 years ahead of Walmart. Uh, we were the first to be successful at what we did, which is a buying club. There was no buying clubs. There were uh, startups. There were people that tried it, and they crashed and burned. They just didn't do it honestly. The secret to our success has been the honesty of that club. We always made every determination in favor of the member. I had employ I mean members who had trouble. We took care of it. We returned their money, whatever they wanted. Uh, maybe they came with high expectations we couldn't fill. We'd like to get everything at, at free. You know, there's nothing free. And so we would give them back their money or whatever it took. But the manufacturers became a problem because they were doing business with us before all those companies. And even before. Uh, manufacturers were having difficulty. They had a piano company. That's a Kimball piano. Kimball's pianos had distributed ships all over the country. They had a simple, dishonest way of doing business. 
That was their problem, not mine. Because they would have a piano that was a black satin finish, baby grand piano that had a, a music rack, a, a leather bench that you could store music in, uh, and they were ready to go with it, and they would list it for, oh, let's say, uh, I'm guessing now because I can't remember exactly, for a few thousand dollars, $4,000, $5,000. Well, I was buying it for 1700 and I was selling it for 1700 So they had a lot of a lot of stores where we had a city, we had franchises. I had several franchises in Houston and Dallas. I had uh, several in Chicago, different sections. And I was doing business. Well, the, the manufacturers said their dealers were going into my clubs, looking at all the catalogs. And that's what I sold from, their catalogs, not mine. And with their priceless, and so they were having difficulty because they couldn't justify. They would have a sale for a $3,900 piano that they would let go for uh, 2200 I was buying it for seventeen, so and I was selling it for seventeen. That was the problem. So when that came up again in honesty, I would talk to them personally. And I think a good one is mattresses but I better finish the story on pianos. And I told them, I, I can't do that. I can't add anything to it. I gotta sell it what you sell it for. Well, we'll just charge you more. I said, no, you won't, because I'll check your sales too. I do not wanna pay any more. I just want the normal uh, transaction. Well, they couldn't do that. I said, well, then I'll get Yamaha. Yamaha wants to come into my clubs. Oh, well, don't do that. And long story short, I kept Kimball. They let me sell it where I did because the truth was, I said, take all your invoices of the stars you've lost business because of me. Put them on one scale. Put the other side of the scale, all the invoices you've got that you sent me for all the pianos I've bought and see which is more. The, the dealer in, in Houston who sells five pianos a month Wonderful. We sell five pianos a week sometimes. So how do you want to do it? That's what happened. Uh, the the um, mattress companies was the biggest markup in in furniture. By the way, is in mattresses. In mattresses. Can you believe that? It's biggest profit. Well, that's what happened because I had to sell mattresses too. <laughs> And um, I contacted Sealy, and they said, all right, they'd love to do it. Well, the same story. We started to go and sell them at cost, and wow, Sealy was upset. I told Sealy to do the same thing the piano company did, use a smaller scale, but that's what you're going to do. And they, they said, no, here's what they would do. They knew how many mattresses we were selling, and they said, listen, Gagan, here's what we can do. We'll make a mattress for your club's special, red, white, and blue, and that was our colors at the time. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that and, and put your name on it. We'll put Sealy mattresses by, uh, it was called UCC at the time, United Consumers Club. 
And I said, why? I'm afraid that my, my members believe me. They'll think I'm, I must be stuffing it with cholera-infected rags because they're so cheap. And I'm not going to go through that. I said, we are who we are. When you are proud to do business with us again, come back. We'll always welcome you. And I just cut them off. Sixteen other mattresses company. Uh, we had what we wanted. And they came back. Many of the manufacturers who had difficulty came back. Now, today, the, the, pro, the, pro, the, the merchandising has changed along with everything else. From the old days when Conestoga wagons finally came on the scene and we weren't peddling to each other, uh, they, were, they would go all to all the farms and give them pots, pans, whatever they wanted. Well, it's not that way anymore. It's developed. And of course, it's developed now to a point where I'm trying to figure it out. But the Amazons came along uh, with the Costco's and Walmarts and everybody is looking for discounts. Nobody wants to pay retail anymore. I've talked to groups of, of people who are uh, well-to-do. Well and the question I ask them is this. I can get you a grandfather's clock, ornate with all the movements and different sounds and different chimes, and I can get it for you at cost. Now, it's the same clock that you have at home or you're going to buy that you have to pay retail for. The retail on that clock will be like $3,000. I'll buy the clock for $1,400. I'll sell it to you for $1,400. Now, which would you rather pay? And, of course, the answer is obvious. And that's how we overcame that, because it's true. Uh, I was offering the one thing I had to offer, access to merchandise that they wanted one way or another, and they're willing to buy, but they wanted to buy at the lowest possible price. It's what we all do. We all look for the lowest price. Well, maybe, maybe uh, uh, the billionaires don't, but I'm pretty close there. And I know, I Everybody look, wants value. Everybody wants the cheapest price. Not cheapest, but the most economical. And uh, that's what I was offering. I had nothing else to offer. I, was, I finally come to an end of my bag of tricks. I didn't know what the hell to do. And I thought, I kept getting all this literature in the mail. Come down to Vegas, have a three, three days free at the hotel. Come, come, uh, join a, 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 come and listen to my, my pitch on Timeshare. Uh, and I can get you this free. And, and I thought, everybody wants something free, but there isn't anything free. They all have hooks. And I said, I'm going to give it to them at the cost. Not free, but at the cost. And there will be no hidden costs. And there weren't. And it worked out because people would hear it and they would join. And then I ran, I ran casino nights where I gave them the free casino. And had uh, I had the money printed with the United Consumers Club. The government, the FBI came in and said, you can't print money. <laughs> there I was up against it again. So I had to use play money. But it's been, it's been fun. It's been, I had it for 38 years, uh, 37 years. And I've, 
I can honestly tell you I enjoyed the, the summation of it. In each individual case where I had to go in and talk to a better business bureau, next thing I know I'm opening a, in Battle Creek, Michigan. I opened a franchise. I got calls from my franchisees. I'm getting hammered by the Better Business Bureau. I said, how is that? Well, every time a member, a prospective member calls the Bureau to ask about us, they say we're like a scam. Uh, I said, they do. I said, I'll come down there and talk to them. <laughs> and I did, and I went down and talked to this little old lady. And she said, well, I, I said, what do you have against us? We haven't had a complaint uh, that I'm aware of, and, and uh, we do everything we say we're going to do, and we get them all, and a lot of your members, your, your citizenry are joining. She said, well, that's the trouble. It's hurting my, mem my, my uh, regular members of the Bureau. I said, really? How am I doing that? Well, they're all buying your stuff. They're not buying theirs. I said, isn't that the freedom of choice that we got in this country? You got the freedom of choice. Nobody tells us what to do, including you. And I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you this. If you continue to say anything about my club, my company, that isn't true, I will take and put you to hell. My attorneys are waiting. They're salivating. And I don't trust them either, but they're going to take you apart uh, and so just get to get your whole budget together, call all that membership you've got that's trying to kill me, tell them to come up with some money, you're going to need big lawyers. No, we never heard from them again. Right. You and called you, it bluff. Yes. The other thing is you've got a book out, or you have had a book out for a long time, but it's called America's Best Kept Secret. And I tell people it it. it talks about your business philosophy and how the company became successful and many of the things that you feel and felt were so important. I've got a question about just a couple that I uh, wanted to talk about. You said being perfect will slow you down. Well, if you're going to, nobody's perfect. Get that established. No, there's no perfect specimen. But what you do if you become so immersed in detail, so absolutely fixated on having every dot and I. No, you're going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. If they're honest mistakes, they don't matter at all because they correct themselves or you correct them. What you've got to do is not make mistakes deliberately to cover over something, to get away from this. Uh, don't mention that. We aren't, we're not doing that. We didn't do it, and we faced some problems because of it. Uh, because some people couldn't take honesty. Can you believe that? They didn't want honesty. They wanted chicanery. They wanted scams and, and promises that can't be kept. We didn't do that. We didn't have time for it. We were too busy doing what they said we couldn't do. They said, you can't do that. And while they were saying that, I built the biggest private company in two years that they ever saw. Uh, that's what, They were wrong. And I, I wasn't going to point that out to them distinctly because nobody likes to be told they're an idiot. But uh, that's what, what I was facing. So I would merely mention that you probably overlooked the fact that you could sell a lot more merchandise if you sold at a cost. It never occurred to you, did it? But it does. And how do you do that? You do it by charging a membership fee. 
The membership fee in, in United Consumers Club when I started it was $400 for 10 years. 10 years of all of the stuff I'm talking about. And I, my most often asked question in the beginning was, wait a minute, why can't I just pay it uh, uh, $40 a year? And I said, well, you could, and I couldn't deliver it, but we wouldn't have a club, uh, and you'd lose your $40. Well, what do you mean? And then I explained it to him. We have to have a showroom. We have to have a place you can go and look at all these catalogs, because I sell by the catalog from the company. I don't make my own catalogs. Oh, and then, of course, they see the light, I hoped, and they would do what they're supposed to do, which is join. Over the years, as, let me give you an example. I started out with a five cent stamp or a seven cent stamp. You're paying 50 some cents a stamp now. Nothing stays stagnant and always rises. And all the costs of running a club were rising. And I explained that to him and I said, uh, I'll honor the contract for the four, 10 years, but the new contracts are coming out for two years. And then I explained why the two years was. When I knew, I didn't know it then. It wasn't hard to figure out. Uh, the government, God bless the government, uh, nobody else will, but uh, <laughs> we had a, uh, a situation with the government that they, they, first of all, in the midst of my business, I started in 71, in 1976, the United States government upturned a hundred-year-old principle of the business world, and what they said was, uh, what they said was, get out of business. But they were making a change, and the change was the length of contracts that you could do for a service to be provided, and they juiced it up. I had my own attorneys, which I didn't agree with. But uh, I had to work on it all the time. So we had a new contract for two years. We didn't go for 10 because they said you couldn't. You couldn't have a promises to, for services to be performed uh, for 10 years. So two years became the contract. But then on the, after two years for a different fee, which now was probably about... Uh, Probably about in 76, the fee was uh, uh, $1,200. And it was for two years, but that included a renewal, a renewal fee of, uh, uh, um, we were gonna do a dollar, they wouldn't let me. Uh, for $100 renewal fee, you could go for an additional 10 years. Ah, yes, and it passed. But all those things came up because nobody ever thought it through. Why do you object to having people buy it at cost? You're not in the business of furniture, and the ones that are will soon change their way of doing business or get out. And that's where I was at. The government caused me trouble, but it causes everybody trouble. They start out to do this and wind up doing that, and that kills everybody. They don't understand it. Today we got I've never seen what we got today. I couldn't even imagine it. And I feel so sorry because you, I never went to school. I never trained, trained for anything. 
I had no talents and had no family and, and no money and no, nothing, no background. And this country produced a billionaire who has that background. Now, only in this country could that happen. It might happen in feudal places, or maybe in, I'm trying to think of a place. Uh, probably Germany did it with Hitler, but here. here. It doesn't happen to an honest man any yes. place but here. That's really what, what it was, because I wasn't upsetting anybody, I thought. I thought, how great it is. If I, if I can get that stuff to you uh, for, at cost, and then I did a lot of, of, of comparisons. Uh, we'd take the ads out of the paper and say, this is the manufacturer, this is the bedroom set they have, and this is the numbers they're getting. They're getting two, uh, uh, $1,930 for this, and I pick it up for eight seventy. I give it to you for eight seventy. You gotta pay the shipping, which is nominal, and that's it. And it worked because it's so basic and honest and simple that the simple people that the government thinks they've got could understand it. And they came. How many members I had when I sold? One million. One million. It might have been off by 10, 20,000, but it's one million. And uh, that generated a lot of money. And the money was there. It was worked out well. I think everybody tried to buy me. Everybody wanted to. Uh, anyway, nothing's changed. I want to tell the rest of the people who may listen to this, nothing's changed. It's now worse, not better. And you can't believe the government at all. Look at, we're, I've never seen a government divided like this one, because a divided house can't stand. That's from the Bible again. And it's really true. They've broken the country. They've broken us apart. And uh, you've got ra raving idiots on one side, and that's the other side I'm on, which is what I consider the good side. We all consider our side to sell us the good side. But the fact is, they're crazy. They're, they're proposing things that can't be done. Uh, there's a, a, a basic law that the government doesn't uh, promote, but the truth is you cannot make two and two equal five. You cannot make two and two equal one. That's what they're doing. They're just twisting things and telling you what they can do. Free college for everybody. The colleges today are the offshoot of all the religious organizations in this country when it started. They're all the Presbyterians and the Lutherans. They have great colleges, and they were great colleges. They've now been inf infiltrated by the nuts. And what you've got, you've got colleges who are now teaching the kids, the government's all wrong, we can do this. You, can, you don't have to put up with that. Let me tell you, then go live somewhere else. You've got Venezuela as a socialist country. And I'm not going to do a podcast on on religion or but on religion not bad but not on government now I caught some of the stuff I haven't looked at this book until this morning <laughs> and I looked at it and I thought holy shit did I really do all yeah that's what you we did. did now you've had all this entrepreneurial success this great idea that came to fruition and as 
really changed the way retailing was done or could be done. What brought you to the desert, and specifically, how did you get to Bighorn and Artie Hubbard? Well, let's see. In 1963, I was in the oil business, and I came out here for something, looking at leases or something, and I fell in love with uh, Palm Springs. It was a wonderful town. It was about 10,000 people, that's normal people, were here. And then, of course, you had the seasons. And uh, on Friday, they would sometimes they come in on Thursday, but come in on Friday from uh, St. Louis, Missouri, from, from Vegas, from Vegas, and from all the other places you can go, Disney World, they were here for the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And this town came alive. There'd be 30, 40,000 people here on the weekends, 10,000 in, in the non-season. And that's what I came into. And uh, it wasn't the nightlife that excited me. Uh, it was the, the rest of the week. You could walk down, and I did. I brought my family out, and I put my, my son in a stroller, and, went down around, looked at the library, and it was just quiet and peaceful. It doesn't resemble it today, so it's, it's the headquarters of everything. It's goofy, but uh, <laughs> that's all right. I understand that things evolve, but there are certain basic rules you cannot f fault. You have to have one and one makes two. You've got to have your word. Uh, I'll do this, and then do it or die trying. But we, we got away from all this, and I'm not a big proponent of it. I, I, I always was sort of out of whack with the rest of the world because I didn't have a regular way to do it. I had to do it my way. My way was off in the highway, so uh, I just did what I thought was necessary. But when I, I had my epiphany, in 1971, and I changed my thinking and my beliefs. Uh, everything good happened. Everything good happened. And I've been uh, a proponent of it ever since. I uh, was born a Lutheran and stayed a Lutheran. Uh, and Lutherans are great because they believe the Bible just the way it's written. You know, if, if Jonah was in the belly of the whale, you better believe he was in the belly of the whale because those words come out of Jesus Christ's mouth. He referred to it. And so that's what you better believe. And if you want to believe it, believe it all. Don't just take sections you like and say that's good. And that's what's happening. Now, I can do a whole religious thing if you want <laughs> because I really believe that. I believe it, my heart. I believe it, how dumb I was. I didn't pay attention to it. I went to church, read the Bible. Nah. Then I had that epiphany. And all of a sudden, it was wonderful. It's been a, a guide for me ever since. Well, we can do a separate episode on that. We'll bring you back. But uh, R.D. Hubbard again, you met him... I knew R.D. Hubbard by reputation, and uh, I came up here 
fell in love with the course, and I was playing golf at the time, and I joined on that morning. Uh, they said, come on up. I said, no, I couldn't get in the front gate. And he said, no, no, uh, this guy was the head of, of uh, the company that owned it, owned the course. And I said, well, all right. I said, but I'm not coming up alone. I'm going to come with three players so I can have a foursome. He said, you can bring a foursome or a fivesome. Just come on up. I said, okay, but they'll, they're all good. Well, I'll bring them up with me. And I brought three of the top bartenders in the area. The ones that were at, uh, what was the big, oh, uh, there were three clubs. These were the guys who could tell you what you drank and who was there, who was sleeping with who. It was wonderful. So I brought them all up to play. They all liked it, and so did I. I joined when we got down to the bottom, but that's another story. R.J. Hubbard uh, has his story, and he, he is a rags-to-riches guy, no question about it. And he's probably the most effective speaker I know that only has 82 words. Uh, I've always been amazed at that. He could move a mountain with 82 words. Uh, yeah, he's not eloquent, and I've told him that before, and he knows it, uh, but he gets it done. And people follow him. I played with, uh, I played golf up here with some of the guests we had during the years. One of them was uh, the Junk Bond King. What was his name? Milken. Yeah. Michael Milken. Yeah, a good, nice guy. And, and we, he didn't play golf, he played tennis. But he played golf because Hubbard asked him to and uh, brought a, a, a tournament up here. And I talked to him and I said, well, how do you think about Hubbard? And he said, I'll tell you this. If he asked me today for $10 million, I'd give it to him on a handshake. And I knew I'd get it back. I said, that seems to be the general impression everybody has of him. And I certainly think highly of him, but I just thought I'd check it and it was prudent. And he said, I understand. And that's, that's R.D. Hubbard. He's got a career that, you want to listen to a podcast? Listen to his podcast. He doesn't mince words. He just tells it the way it was. Uh, and he's got a, how can you be 11 years old and driving a wagon with ice? Selling ice in Wichita, Kansas. Oh, anyway, uh, I didn't know any of that when I, when I met him. I talked to him up here. I liked the way he talked. I liked the way he figured out the uh, two hotels sending all the buses full of uh, freeloaders. Free, free and I came back. You wrote in your book, and I think it applies to Bighorn, you said... Um, Democracy works best in government, but poorly in business. That applies to Bighorn for sure. That's true. You know, I haven't read that book, as I told you, in 20 years. But it was written in 1990, and it was meant for my sales force. And uh, if you understand, and I know you do, the publishing business, uh, here's what I found out. The publishing business has a bestseller if you got over 10,000 sales. That's a bestseller. You think it was 50 million? No. 10,000 is a bestseller. Uh, I have 50,000 in print of this. Now I have 200,000 in print. 
because I figured out the way to do it. Again, I just gave everybody who joined the club a book. <laughs> Absolutely. And I could put it, so it was honest. And, uh, but Hubbard, uh, Hubbard wrote a book again. Right. And it wasn't about the glass company, but it was so well written. Uh, since he's illiterate, I don't know who wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of questions I have for you, too. What, what would you, how would you describe your leadership philosophy? I don't know if it's leadership. Uh, uh, direction. I was a direction giver. Uh, I made known to all my employees, and I had... I don't know how many employees. I probably had over 12,000 employees. But <clears throat> I made it understood what my philosophy was simply this. I believed in the Bible, and the Bible was right, and the Bible tells you, uh, answers all your questions. Nobody reads the Bible anymore. It's a sad thing, but it's true. But back in those days, some people did. But they understood that. And they understood that if they said the belly of the whale, it was the belly of the whale. That's the Roman. I mean the uh, uh, Roman, yeah. The Lutheran way. And it was a good way to do it. And I still believe it. But uh, nowadays I attend a Catholic church here. Because Father Lincoln, uh, Monsignor Lincoln now, uh, is a magnificent homilies. He writes, oh. And they're so good and so real. And we thought we got hooked on it, and that was the way it is. And it's the biggest church in the valley. It's made two other churches. And he's a magnificent uh, priest, which is strange for Lutherans. They don't have <laughs> priests. But we have what we got. What person has had the greatest influence on your life? I don't... I don't I can give you names, but I'm not sure they're the greatest. I think it was a combination of people. People who came to me at a time when I needed it uh, without my knowing it, and, and that was important. The uh, way I started the company was to have a meeting with, with uh, my attorney, God rest his soul, uh, a good man, and uh, he, he said, I'll bring some people. So he brought three people, and uh, that was fine. I didn't know who they were. I was just out of a, a operation, and I had been in the cyst baths and the rest of it. But So my wife was there. We did it at my home, uh, and my wife... <laughs> She made bologna sandwiches for him, but that's the way it went. We weren't, we weren't sitting high at the time. But he brought a man named Fred Whitlinger, a Lutheran, by the way, and uh, he was the top IBM salesman in the state uh, and some of the surrounding states. A magnificent person who followed all the things I was just discovering. And the second one was um, an accountant. I didn't know him either. He knew, he knew the uh, IBM salesman because he bought equipment from him. And uh, they were friends. He was a, a Jewish accountant. And 
probably still with me, by the way, 48 years later. But he was super, super, and a very, very conservative man. God, he was conservative. He didn't come with me uh, full time until eight years later. But at that meeting, I had him and, and Whitlinger, and then I had, uh, yeah, Gene Deutsch, Fred Whitlinger, and then Jack Allen was an attorney, a great guy, and a uh, good golfer. I knew that too. So they were sitting around that table with my own attorney and talk, listening. I said, I'll explain what I'm going to do. If you are all acquainted, and they were, I said, then you already discussed me, so you know what I've done in the past. Things that couldn't be done, but we were done. I'm telling you, I've since had an epiphany, and I explained that to him, which I don't think Gene agreed with, but anyway, uh, that's what I did. And I said, now, here's what I'm going to do. And then I told him how I was going to build this company. I was, not gonna, I was gonna charge the 400, I was gonna get the manufacturers, uh, and they all, and they were incredulous, except I had that attorney of mine, God rest him, he's, uh, and he'd been with me as I did the oil business and some other things, he knew what I was capable of, and so he told him he thought I'd get it, and he would, would, was going to be with me in it, and he was. Well, they all, Fred and Jack, the salesman and the man who became the judge, came with me right away. Uh, and Gene said, I, you know, uh, can I get back to you on that? And I said, sure, Gene, whenever you want to. I was about a week later doing something else. I got a call from Gene. He says, I'm going to come with you. He had taken the time to check it all out. I loved him, and I still do. Uh, but that's how, how I did it, and I was blessed because these gentlemen believed what I was saying, and my wife didn't. <laughs> but it was the way it should be, and uh, I was very impressed with that, and it helped me in my confidence. And then I went out to get a logo. I, I knew an artist, I said, here's the kind of logo I want, can you draw it? And he said, sure, I can go to work. I said, no, you wanna draw it? Just draw it, I'll give you $50, that's all I got. He's okay, I got the, I got the logo. And then uh, I did that on everything else. Went in, told him honestly what it was and how I was gonna do it and why I couldn't pay for it. <laughs> They came. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Uh, but during the, during that whole time, that whole uh, thirty-eight years. Anyway, all the stuff that I said in here happened. Absolutely. Uh, it, it all is just not just the, the success. The little vignettes that are in there I put in, because I started this book with Bob Shook who's done a lot of books. We got halfway and I let Bob go because he wanted to hear the more salacious stuff. Uh, mm, 
little, you know, off I know, I this is going to be out. It's going to be the company's representative. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell it like it is. And that's what I did. And I did it without him. And uh, I was happy with that. But he got royalties on it. So. And I again, that book is America's Best Kept Secret. For those that are listening to the podcast, you should try to get a hold of it. It's well worth your time. You got together with Hubbard, and as I understand it, it, really almost on a handshake too when you came in to invest in Bighorn and, and no, a belief in just him a and what he was doing. Just a handshake, and I became the chairman of the committee to end all committees. And it worked out good uh, because he, he kept his word, I kept my word, uh, I didn't ask for anything special. Uh, there are a lot of people that do things want to have their name on a building. I don't need a name on a building. I know my name, and I know who I am, and I know what I've done wrong and what I've done right. So I'm very happy with that. But Hubbard has been very close to me because I have an affection for him. Really, I do. I'm not, I'm not homosexual, you know that. <laughs> you can tell that from my speeches, but... I, I, I think the world of him. I, I, I like him as a man. I would follow him anywhere. Uh, his 82 words is enough for me. And that's where it's at. It's been that way. I've never said no to him. Uh, whatever he's ever wanted me to do, I've done. And I've done it willingly. And I will continue, I hope. But Hubbard is now 84 years old. Well, 83, he'd be 84. Uh, and I'm five years older than he is. I never let him forget that because I call him Junior. <laughs> but he's a good man, and we've had a lot of a lot of laughs together. We traveled together. We went to um, we put the company together. When you look at it, we went to hire uh, Fazio for the golf course, which was difficult because he wasn't going to do it. So we, Colbert, Halbert, and myself, I don't think there was anybody else. We flew down to uh, where he was working. I think it was on, he was tweaking uh, the club down in, where they do the Masters, I think, yeah. Halbert had a plane, and we went down, uh, it was a Hawker, Hawker 800, and it sat, Six, six. We could squeeze seven into it, uh, and it was a twin end. It was his jet, so it was all right. But we had a good time, and by the time, <laughs> by the time uh, our friend sobered up, uh, not, I'm talking about the, the designer Fazio. He was already in this one, but he had told us that. And, and you can put this on the air, because I don't like those people uh, at the Vintage because they were just diametrically opposed to us from the day we started. And they offered them the same fee we paid them to do the second course for us, for, to not do it. Can you believe that? I got it right from the horse's mouth, and I was, I was amazed, and so, I've done my best to aggravate him ever since. <laughs> and I've done just that. Uh, I used to go around. I, we had 
uh, intramural, intramural, uh, I set up a thing with uh, Bel Air. Bel Air became, I went to Bel Air and knew a fellow there. And we set up an intramural course every year. We would have their, their people play my people and we'd have a trophy. The trophy was presented to us as a gift uh, by uh, a gentleman here who was no longer with us. He's passed away, but he was a good man. And we got this beautiful trophy. So we played the golf every year. Hubbard and I would look for their players. They would do the same. And, and that went on for four years, I think, five years. And uh, we played and we won the majority of the matches. And whoever won the match that year, and it was two, three days of matches, I think, maybe two, my mind, and it, uh, we would keep the trophy. Well, we kept the trophy. And uh, then we quit when we finally stopped uh, because this is a very generous club. Uh, we would pay for the two days of golf and uh, uh, caddies and for dinners and drinks and everything. Uh, they, the Bel Air Club had a whatever rule they had, they, had, they had, couldn't pay for it, so they, they balked. They charged the members for that tournament. We didn't do that. We brought them here and paid for everything. So we had the upper end, and it worked out well, but Tubbard was a big helper in that. Well, it's been a special relationship between you and R.D. for sure a great friendship, good business relationship, and a thank you from all of us who now get the benefits of Bighorn uh, and, the, and the benefits of what this club has become because there's no other place like it. Well, but a lot of people beside Bighorn, beside Hubbard and I, you, you, buy the, you buy the concept of a club that's for everybody. And there's no specialties, there's nobody big shots, there's nobody up here you know, I'm the House Committee, I'm, you got your hat off. Stick your hat up your ass, because that ain't gonna work. And I killed all those committees, and it's worked every since. And great employees. I mean, that's another, whenever people come here to visit, they always go away saying, you got the best employees ever. Yeah, it just, it's what's good for everybody. Uh, right. And I think it makes a difference. Because in the, I belong to other clubs. I own a golf club in Indiana, and uh, I've seen it. I, I do the same thing at my club. But uh, the other clubs don't. They make special people with special privileges, uh, and you, you get all that, and then all that backbiting. We don't have that here. You got something to say, say it to everybody. I have one last question, and that is. What advice would you give a 20-year-old Jim Gagan today? Stay in school, you asshole. You're going to have nothing but trouble ever after. And that's true. I don't have it. I can't help people what to do. Uh, I think people never do what they wind up doing. They never set out. They start out like this, and they develop along the way. Different twists. A little thing that never seemed to matter now is important. And that's how they become doctors and lawyers and uh, all the other uh, privileged people. 
Uh, I'm sorry we don't have enough doctors. No, that's what worries me. We have a plethora. We have more shysters than you can count. We're graduating 40,000 lawyers a year. And we're only burying two. So, you know, <laughs> you know that's, that's where the problem lies. And uh, I can't stand him, son of a bitches. But I have to use them. I have to, because I'm not going back to law school. I wouldn't get out. Oh, I'm sorry I, I, I offed you in the beginning. Because no. I thought, that's horseshit to a podcast. Then Hubbard got a hold of me, and of course, that changed the world. Uh, I said, if you think I should do it, I'll do it. And we've done it. We didn't do it well. You can edit whatever you want on that. Don't take the swear words out, because that's me. That's, that's a part of your personality. Yes, it is. It's, yeah, personality. I don't know what personality is, but I have had uh, no trouble with friends over the years. Uh, I've always, I can always get up. I'll tell you a story. How I got public speaking. I, uh, I was in seventh grade, because I went to eighth, you know. Not, not all the time, but I did. <laughs> and so I went to eighth grade, and they had a, a, a in the Chicago Public Dist Park District, they had a theater group. And they would go to different parks and put on a whole show with costumes and orchestras and everything. And uh, they came to the, my school, and they said they were going to do Prince Charming. And I thought that was a good idea. They didn't ask me, but I thought, okay. Well, it turns out that <laughs> I became Prince Charming. Because, not because I had any talent or because I wanted it. They came to me because I was the only person in that school in the eighth grade that could memorize. And I could do the whole script, and I did. That's how I got to be Prince Charming. And uh, in those days, I had a nose that came in the room before I did. Uh, it was, you know, it's big now because it's growing, but uh, it was a mountain. And I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think anything of it. It stopped a lot of blows into my face. But uh, that, anyway, there I was, Prince Charming. That was a, a little, my princess, I should have married her. Uh, she had a crush on that nose, and I was going to give her the nose, but here, she, uh, anyway, her father, remember, this is 1944, uh, her father, wise man, her name was Birdie May. She was from the South, a nice girl, and she, uh, her father had figured out all the money is going to be in surplus. So he got all the surplus stuff he could. He had surplus rifle. He had warehouses full of it. And so she became very wealthy. I should have married her. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, Jim. And, I'm well. And again, this has been a real pleasure for me. And uh, sharing your story is really important to the Big you're morning, very, so you're a very kind man. That's why you're so successful, because you're full of shit. <laughs> thanks, Jim, for your candor, and thanks for your story. And thanks to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers for their support of the Bighorn Podcasts.